I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a Theravada Buddhist monk, uh, but not just anyone. It's the all-loved everywhere in the world, Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn grew up in London and earned a degree in theoretical physics from Cambridge University. Disillusioned with the world of academia, he became a monk in 1974 and trained in the jungles of Thailand under the meditation master Ajahn Chah. He is revered today as a spiritual teacher and guide and is abbot of the largest Buddhist monastery in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. He's the author of many books, including Opening the Door of Your Heart, Mindful Bliss and Beyond, The Art of Disappearing, and Don't Worry, Be Grumpy. His public teachings regularly, when we were allowed to go and travel to physical places would attract thousands of people and then be watched by millions of people online. Despite his status, he still lives in a very simple, small hut in the forest that he actually built himself and has no money or bank account and enjoys nothing more than a cup of tea and sitting in meditation. With us today is one of the greatest monks in our lifetime, one of the greatest teachers, Ajahn Brahm. That actually was a wonderful start for our conversation. Everybody loves you. (laughs) (laughs) Just for our listeners, of the hundred episodes I've recorded of Slow Mo so far, my producer and his girlfriend, Mary, decided to say, no, no, we're joining this one to tell Ajahn how much we love him and thank him for this. So, Ajahn Brahmo, I'm going to actually ask the difficult questions, not because I want them to be difficult, but because I'm actually very curious myself. I really, really need to understand a few things. Oh, please ask Very good. Yes. So I, I want to start with the obvious one. In our world today, you're an amazing teacher who's spreading a message that is so positive around the world, and yet you're so modest and kind. I heard someone actually call you Ajahn Donut, which you laughed to, uh, because, you know, <laughs> because they basically said, well, a donut is round and sweet and... Round, yes, I'm holy. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, exactly, and holy, and also uh, soft In the on middle. the inside. And I, I love that. And I love that humbleness and modesty. And yet we live in a world where it seems that many who have let's say, little contribution to us as beings, to the entirety of our wisdom and awakening, if you want, seem to lack that modesty. You know, there seems to be so much ego in our world. And I wonder why. Why is it that those who are amazing teachers end up acting the most modest and those who are maybe a little fluffy act so arrogantly (laughs) and so self-centered? Where did our world go wrong? I once gave a talk many years ago, and it was a title was Ego, She Go, We All Must Go. (laughs) In other words, our personalities and stuff. That can get in the way of kindness and communication. And one of the little ways of dealing with other people is realizing it's not, you're not talking to another person. They're listening with you. So it's not about you. It's not about me. Life is always about us, a wonderful relationship which we have with one another. And it's you know, what's between us is most important, not me, not you, but the space which we create between us. And that bit of friendliness, the fun, the way you talk to a friend you've known for many years, that's the way you try and talk to everybody. Hmm. So in your heart, you believe everyone is a friend? Yeah. And if you look at that friendship, I've been sometimes teaching in prisons and where there's really gross people by their criminal record, but you look at them as a friend and it's just so kind and wonderful to you. Maybe it's because not many people look at them that way. 
they respond with an openness. I heard you say that before, and it actually quite shocked me. There was once a story that you said in one of your teachings about how they almost attacked you, and you still acted with love and kindness. Well, they never attacked me, but they, they asked me once, he said, because I had a little a pen, something like this, which was not really a, a biro pen, but a security lamp. And they said, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm, would you really be able to think of pressing that pen before we raped you? Because hmm. these were prisoners who had nothing to lose. And so they couldn't really add on any more to their sentence. They were going to die in jail. So and they said, no, no, you probably couldn't. And they laughed, <laughs> said, no, no, we're too fast for that. But they said, because you're kind to us, because you've offered us friendliness, we would always be friendly to you. And there's too many prisoners in this group who would protect you. They wouldn't allow you to be hurt. A lot of times it's what you see in another person is what they show you back. If you're afraid of them and think they are going to harm you, then often they will. Do you think we can apply this to the world at large? Is this the reason oh, for yes. violence in our world? Yeah, well, I think it's a lot of violence is, again, very desperate people are being put in difficult situations. We give people a tiny bit of kindness and friendliness. You don't expect violence from them, but you give them kindness and respect. And that's what people give back to you. Now, how many people, they're not really respected in this world for some reason or another, because of maybe their religion, their garb, the way they look, uh, just maybe some deformity or whatever, but sometimes they're afraid to actually to communicate with kindness with someone. So to take away that fear, yeah, and just to respect what you see in another person, which is kind and good. A little bit example of that. I've got many friends in different religions. This was like uh, a, one of the chaplains in one of the big private schools in Australia. He said, come and give a talk at our school assembly. It was all boys, very strong Christians. So when I went in uh, there, they had to stay outside, first of all, while the kids got settled. I was outside with the principal, with the chaplain and just myself, and the principal turned to me and said, this is a Christian school. We're very devout practicing Christians here. So when we go inside the main assembly hall, we're going to bow to the statue of Jesus Christ. But you're a Buddhist. You don't need to do that. And I told him, I said, I demand my right to bow <laughs> to your statue of Jesus. And it took him by surprise. And I explained to him, there's always something in all statues and all religions and all beings and all people, there's something there which I can respect. And that's what I'm going to bow to. Oh, my God, that's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. But the result of that, this very strong Christian, he came to my monastery two weeks later with a couple of busloads of kids from his school. I took him into the main hall, and together, <laughs> I wish we'd have had this photographed, together we both bowed to the Buddha statue three times. And it's little things like that, is little actions. I respect you. I can always find something to respect in somebody else. And that's what I bow to. I'm going to have to stay here for a while, even though that was not my plan at all. But, but I have a confession to make. So I was raised a Muslim, you know, one of multiple of the unitheism. So basically the idea yes. of one God and no statues. And for a while I had a Buddhist girlfriend who was wonderful in every possible way. And, you know, on her birthday, I decided to take her to a, a Buddhist temple as her birthday gift. And I, I admit to you, at the time, because of the way I looked at life, I actually refused to bow to the statue. In my mind, my conditioning was, I'm not supposed to. My religion teaches me otherwise. And now, now you completely awaken me because I love Buddhism. I love so much about Buddhism. I actually see so many similarities between Buddhism and Islam. You know, every faith, actually, there are similarities between them. And now you're saying, if I actually put my heart to the respect I had, not the objection. So the positive and not the negative. So I have to admit in front of everyone that we're recording this for, I apologize, I bow. I bow in a ton of respect. That's an amazing lesson. Just five minutes into our conversation. That's wonderful. Shouldn't we have more of that? I mean, the idea of wars, for example, isn't that an exaggeration of that same 
rigidness of ideology, if you want. But many of those wars are not wars on ideology. There was all sorts of other underhanded political shenanigans of the world. And it's such a difficult thing to stop wars, but no one ever wins. And I'm not quite sure, just you know, maybe that instead of, we can't really stop people having guns, but maybe we can stop people having bullets. <laughs> or maybe having bullets with which are sweets. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I had a conversation once with a game designer who said maybe video games shouldn't be about killing others. It should be about kissing others. It's like, imagine a video game when you're hugging other, and you know, they're not enemies, but you have to hug them for you to gain points or something like that. Yeah, I know, but it's really difficult in today's world, especially if you're a religious figure. And if you hug anybody of an opposite gender, then you get uh, accused of sexual harassment. Yeah. Or if you, these days, and under COVID, you know, you might catch something. But I did <laughs> figure out the solution to that. Uh-huh. So, because even mugs like to hug. Mm-hmm. So, I can't hug anybody else. You don't know who might, who, what you might catch. So, I put my arms around and I hug myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and that's I can't a get sued. Hug. I'm not going to sue me. And I can't catch anything I haven't already got. <laughs> exactly. Self compassion is what we're yeah, aiming so for. Fucking, yeah. 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 Let's stick with COVID and lockdown for a minute. Last year, I had a a very um, strong intention of something I called half monk. In me, there is a very deep desire to find the silence and space I need to ascend and learn and become more connected, if you want, to what really matters. But at the same time, my lively everyday responsibilities uh, may not enable me to do that for maybe a year to a few years. And so half monk to me was the idea of Maybe I can have 50% of my life living the life of a monk and 50% engaged if you want, which by the way is not different from what I believe you do in an interesting way, even though you're more on the monk side, but you engage in life quite often. You give a lot of talks, you're constantly engaged and so on. Anyway, when COVID and the lockdowns happened, it became sort of an interesting forced, it's like a forced monkhood. It's like spend time in the monastery, spend time in your isolation and reflect and meet yourself. Some people took that very, very positively and some completely collapsed. What would the distinction be in your view? What would your advice be for people who are being given that opportunity? The only distinction is not four walls ever make a prison. It's whether you want to be there or you don't want to be there. That's what makes a prison. And so any place in the world you don't want to be, even if it's in a six-star hotel somewhere, even if it's in a big mansion on the ocean side, if you want to be somewhere else, that mansion side is like a prison for you. But if you're in a very small room, I live in a cave. This is a little office here. It's not where I live. My cave is next door, only about three meters diameter. And I love it in that cave. And I spend many hours, many days in that cave. People think that that's just uh, actually more than lockdown. It's like solitary confinement. It's what they do to people in jail to punish them. And I've often said if ever I do something wrong unintentionally, I go to jail, that would be a wonderful holiday. Because <laughs> in jail, all I need to do is to punch a prison officer. I get three months solitary. That's retreat. <laughs> Yay, wonderful time. Retreat. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you can look at lockdown as retreat or you can look at what it's being in prison. It depends really whether you want to be there or whether you always want to be somewhere else. It's the complaining mind. That is what makes the difference. How do we start to view it as a retreat? I'm with you 100%. I actually did call it a retreat. How do you do that? For those who haven't had the training that you had over 46 years now? Yeah. It's called marketing. It's marketing. <laughs> you start until it's not lockdown. Change the words. You know, you can go on retreat for two weeks. You can have some rest for two weeks. I don't know, before COVID started, one of the biggest problems in the world for people was tiredness. And they didn't have enough time to rest or to do things. And our beautiful lockdown came. I call it beautiful. That's my marketing. 
beautiful lockdown, lovely lockdown, whatever you wish to call it, and you have time for yourself and time for others. It's an opportunity. Now, all that reading you wanted to do, the listening you wanted to do, the rest you needed, and the ability to just maybe learn a little meditation or quiet time or get into your spiritual path a bit deeper. Well, you don't have time for that otherwise. Now we have the gift of time. I love that so much. So much, the most precious, if you want. But then how about our attachment? I mean, like, what if I miss the pub or I want to go out and walk in a shopping mall or whatever that is? You know, these are things that are important to me. Yes, but you can't be in the pub 24 hours a day. You can't do lockdown in a bar. <laughs> Good idea for some. <laughs> <laughs> so what we usually do, and this is one of uh, little talks, this is a cup of tea I'm holding up here. And I often ask people in talks or in conventions, how heavy is my cup of tea? And before they answer, I give them the correct answer. The longer I hold it, the heavier it feels. After one minute, it feels really heavy. After two minutes, my arm is in pain. After three minutes, I'm in agony and a very stupid monk. <laughs> so when it gets too heavy to bear comfortably, I put it down and rest. I only need to rest, you know, in this case, only 30 seconds. And I pick up the cup again. It actually feels much lighter. Mm. And that is what stress means in life. Stress has got nothing to do with how much work and how many duties you have. Stress happens because when it gets too uncomfortable to hold on to continue, we don't know how to put it down and rest for a few minutes. And for people who say, well, if I put it down and rest, the job won't get done. It's the opposite. If you take a rest for you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, you go for that walk in the park or you just sit down, listen to some soft music, or even better, meditate, you really relax. And after half an hour, your brain is re-energized. You get back on that computer, whatever you wish to do, whether it's writing an email or doing a presentation or even innovating, you find your brain is now alive. It's re-energized. There's too many people in this world, they work when they're tired. They think they have got to get something done, but you waste so much time when your brain is not ready to work. If you take a rest, meditation, take a bit of time off, and then you work, then I think you'll find that you get more things done. Your productivity increases and the quality of your work increases. And you feel much better about it. And I think that's yeah. very, oh, very, much, very much sound advice. Yeah. You enjoy the life. We don't know how to rest these days. We don't, sadly. You know, the whole purpose of Slow Mo, this podcast, is to tell people, regardless of how busy you are, there's always time to slow down. And I'm a successful businessman myself. You know, I've had a, a very good career. And I actually agree with you 100%. It wasn't because I worked harder. It was because I worked on things that I loved and I rested. Yeah. I actually, yeah. Even today with my, you know, very prominent startup that is hopefully going to make a big difference to the world, I make simple rules of I'll work only four days of the week and I work those many hours every day. And at the same time, of course, there are exceptions to that rule, but at least there is a rule to start. There is a bit of an expectation on my side that the rest time is included in my day. Let's go into the difficult question. I, I have been waiting to ask you this for such a long time. What is the mind? Seriously, what is the mind? Okay. Difficult questions uh, need simple answers. Please. So, this was one of my friends from university. He became a diplomat, and when he had his first children, his, uh, I think his youngest daughter was in grade one at school, and the teacher asked the whole class the question, what is the biggest thing in the world? And this was a group of six-year-old children. One put their hand up and said, my daddy, my daddy, my daddy. It's the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> Another one said, an elephant, an elephant. Another one said, a mountain, a mountain is much bigger than an elephant. And the child of um, one of my best friends at university said, 
my eye is the biggest thing in the world. And even the teacher didn't understand, what are you talking about? And this little six-year-old genius, she said, well, my eye can see her daddy, my eye can see an elephant, my eye can see a mountain, and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. It's a different way of conceiving which gives rise to these moments of genius. My eye is the biggest thing in the world because everything can fit into it. And when I, he wrote to me and I received uh, that lovely anecdote, I replied saying, almost right, nine out of 10, because your mind can see everything your eye can see and things you'll never see in the real world, things you imagine. Your mind can hear sounds, real and imaginary, can feel, smell, taste, and it has its own area of experience. It's knowledge, it's knowing. In fact, Mo, everything you can ever experience in your life can fit into your mind. So your mind is the biggest thing. It's not the biggest thing in the world because the world can fit into your mind. Oh, oh let's hold on to this for a second. Now, that is a biggie. So... Are you saying that the mind is the only thing there is? No, everything can fit into it. The things which fit into it are as well. This is, in computer science, we call this circular references, which is really the confusing bit, if you want. Okay. So our mind gives us that ability to perceive everything, to become aware, to become conscious, if you want, of everything around us. And in an interesting way, in some of the theories of physics, for example, without that awareness, nothing actually exists, which I know is very similar to Buddhism, the idea of the absence of objective reality, if you want. Yes. Now, let's hang on to that thought for a second and explain it a little further. So I am now, I don't even want to use the word I because we will talk about the mind maybe slightly differently. But that mind has the ability to perceive everything, to contain everything within it. And without it containing anything within it, that thing doesn't really exist, at least not to the mind. Is that true? So, so can we talk a bit about that idea of emptiness, objective reality, maybe for a second, just to establish that? Yes. Uh, the objective reality is that when we are more empty, especially when we're not thinking so much and giving things names. We take out this terrible verbalization which we depend upon in this, in our cultures, learn how to be silent rather than everything we experience, give it a name, think about it, try and find some conclusion to it. It's in the silence that all the questions stop. If you can look at this mind, another metaphor, it's not the same as a metaphor of great emptiness or the vastness where everything can fit into it. This is an old metaphor which people have used in all cultures throughout history, looking at the mind as a, like a lake, a body of water. And so many people are concerned about the, the waves on the surface of that water. And that's called thinking. And if you go to a body of water and it's perfectly still, there's no waves on the surface at all, only then do you get this accurate, trustworthy reflection of the moon and the stars in the heavens above. Even small waves will distort that image. But so often when people meditate, they want to find some stillness and spiritual reality. They find it hard to get beyond those waves. But if you just go just a few inches below the surface of the water, then there are no waves, there's no agitation. The agitation of your mind, which you perceive as thinking, is only on the surface. If you can just go, imagine that simile, that metaphor, just go a little bit beyond or underneath those thoughts. You get this wonderful stillness. And that stillness is not thought, but it is knowing. There is something there 
that we're all seeking, isn't there? There is stillness. It's obvious you're aware of that stillness. But when you ever experience stillness, please don't give her a name. <laughs> stillness is very shy. And if you give it a name and start thinking about her, she'll run away faster than you can imagine. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> everything we find, everything we perceive is perceived in that mind. So let me ask you a few questions. What is wisdom? When it comes to our perception of things, that thing that we're all seeking, what is it? Wisdom is known by what it produces. And wisdom is not what produces your PhD. Absolutely. Wisdom is not... <laughs> wisdom is not what beats your opponent in an argument in a coffee shop. Wisdom is what brings you peace, that wonderful stillness inside, and that sense of problems and difficulties in your life and in the world disappearing and vanishing. Peace is known by its behavior, what it does, not by what it is. So if it creates calm and peace and stillness, Sometimes, you know, when I teach meditation retreats, some of the people who come on those retreats, they say, oh, I love my husband, my wife, and my parents to do this. It's wonderful for them. How can I teach them or encourage them to learn how to meditate? And I said, just by you being still. And they will see by themselves that their wife, their husband, their father, their, even their employee is a much more efficient, kind, productive and beautiful person. They will know the wisdom by how it affects you. But if you go back after a retreat and you're a pain in the ass for the people you live with, <laughs> then that's not a very good sign of wisdom at all. Very bad marketing. Yeah, very bad, yeah. <laughs> but within all of this, I mean, if stillness is achievable, so it's not easily, but so abundantly, why is it then that we're so engaged in everything else? <laughs> because we don't know any better. And it's just like the old, the blind leading the blind. Just people like sheep just following one another over the cliffs like the lemmings. But anyway, that's one of the reasons why I will now demonstrate what stillness is and how easy it is. For you, Mo, to be still <laughs> in those spaces. You didn't know when I was going to start talking again. So out of respect, you were waiting for me. You were waiting in this moment. You became still. So... Stillness is much better experienced than thought about. In fact, you can't think about stillness. You destroy it. So a lot of times, uh, the reason why people think a lot, do a lot, because, again, they know no better. But now and again, you have these moments in your life, you've had many of them, I'm sure, where you've been sitting in a place, it's not necessarily scenic or beautiful. You've been sitting there and... In your mind, you realize that there's no other place in the whole world you'd rather be. You're not missing any people. The people you're with is just all you'd ever want. You're not planning for tomorrow. You're perfectly in this moment, just happy to be here right now. You find the mind doesn't need to think. It just is. You find stillness comes. And if you can recognize the delight, the beauty, the joy of stillness. It's a very delightful place to be in. So much so that after a while, it becomes like a second home for you. You know how, just to sit there, eyes closed, eyes open, doesn't matter. Just enjoy the stillness, to value it. And then, as John Lennon would say, let's... Give peace a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally with you. It's shocking, really, because almost all of the peace in the world is just available in those moments where we stop doing. 
And yet we're running around, we're running around, we're running around, we're running around, we're doing, we're busy, we're filling the day, we're, you know, adding more things. And when, when you have a few minutes available to us, we play an audiobook and then we swipe on Instagram and it's crazy. And in a, in a very interesting way, it's taking away from one of the biggest joys in life. Yes. And again, it's because we don't value that joy of peace. And sometimes it's also we're afraid of that joy of peace. Because when it's you're peaceful, it's like Mo doesn't exist anymore. And that really challenges our sense of identity. You can't do silence. Silence happens when you disappear. And for sometimes, that's very threatening for a person. It's like they're losing their ego. Even though it feels wonderful, we'd rather have our ego than have the joy of silence and things vanishing. That's such an interesting view of it. I never thought of it this way. It's because yourself, as defined by you, disappears that you don't want that to happen. Correct. Whenever you write down on a piece of paper who you think you are, it's what you've done, what you do, your qualities, all those things vanish in silence. But some will say it's also because it's very difficult. I mean, some people will say once I try to achieve that silence, some little voice starts to chatter. Yeah, always that word. I try to achieve silence. To make that uh, even more concise, there was a cartoon which I had up in our dining room for quite a few years. I think someone took it because it was too good a cartoon. Just three <laughs> panels. And the first was this very angry man had a little poster, I want happiness, very angry. And he came to see a monk. And the monk took a look at that poster, I want happiness. First mistake, crossed off the I. So what's next? You've just got one happiness. Second mistake, want. Yes. And he said, what's left? Happiness. And the two were smiling. <laughs> you can't achieve happiness. It's the achievement gets in the way. So you can be happy, but you can't get happiness. So happiness is a lot of time when your ego just is put down for a while and all you're wanting just disappears. You just put it down for a while. You don't want anything in the whole world. And you know, your sense of self is just gone. You realize you, know, you are in this moment connected to the people around you, to the, your office, Know, to, to me right now because you're right in front of me and then when you just enjoy that connection and you don't want anything in the whole world you find a beautiful sense of peace you've got nothing to do just to be now I used to when before COVID time I used to go to many cities I've been through Dubai but never into the city being over to New York and San Francisco and London and all these but it's very rare in these big cities to see a human being all I ever see is human goings, but very rarely a human being, actually being here. I'm with you. Yeah. So I try and be, make sure I'm a human being sometimes, <laughs> instead of a human going. It is really what it's all about. Do you feel it gets addictive after a while? It's like that feeling of peace becomes a bit like heroin, if you want. Much better than heroin. <laughs> That's a great statement. <laughs> no, I'm saying this honestly, because this guy came over. He was trying to cold turkey from heroin. It's just a difficult thing to overcome. And I just gave him as much support as possible. Now, in a monastery, there's a very positive, supportive environment. can sleep as much as he wants. doesn't have to come to any ceremonies or anything. Just drinking the peace. And he's getting really, really good at it. And then after a while, he came running up to me and said, I jump on, I just have to say this to you. And I always thought that heroin was the highest pleasure in the world. But he said, no, it's not. So we just had a really, really deep, peaceful meditation. That joy of the peace, he said, was way, way more intense than heroin hit. And I've never taken heroin, so I can't sort of confirm that or not, but he was a very honest man. And I sort of, I like to quote that. And once you start getting into it, the joy of silence and peace, that's why people will go for that more and more. 
and they would not want to destroy it. It's valuable. You know, you know the, the joy which people have of a beautiful relationship, of being in love. It's so joyful. But why is it that people destroy it? Relationships don't last as long as you know, sometimes they really should. And so much in our world, the most beautiful parts, like mountains and seascapes, we destroy. So it's nice to be able to, when we have peace and stillness, we don't need to put a, a restaurant on top of mountains <laughs> or a flag on top of the moon. Just leave yeah. it alone. Oh, that's so beautiful. Just leave it alone. Yeah. Can we move from the what is to the why? So why? Why are we here? We are here. It is to grow, to learn. And that's one of the reasons why that an anecdote, believe it or not, I was a school teacher for one year before I became a monk. That's why I lost all my hair teaching teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I had to set my first exam, didn't know how to do it. So I asked another teacher, and he said to me, try and set the average score to 70%, 70%.'Cause if you make it too easy and your students get 100% or 90%, it will have no value. If they do terribly and only get 30%, 40%, they'll come away thinking that my subject was maths. The maths is too hard. If you give them a 70% score, they'll be encouraged. There's a nice score. And the 30% where they make mistakes, that's where I, as a teacher, can learn what they haven't understood yet and focus my next lessons on their weaknesses. So every time we make mistakes in life, those mistakes should not be punished. They're there for a reason. That's where we learn. We can grow. So we don't need to think we've done something wrong when we make mistakes. Mistakes are right in life. They're correct. We should not stigmatize them. We should see these as other learning experiences of life. And little by little, we grow, 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 learn more and more and more from our mistakes. So that's nice. Is there ever anything wrong? I mean, is everything right? Even mistakes are right, challenges are right? In the big picture, yes. That's why even when somebody gets sick, I got really fed up with people stigmatizing sickness. And this happened personally. I had, I don't know what I had once many years ago. I was waiting in a hospital in a surgery for my appointment. And one of my friends came in and they saw me sitting, waiting for the doctor to look at me. And he said to me, Ajahn Brahm, I never expected to see you in a place like this. As if, I was sitting in a brothel or something. I went to a pub where monks shouldn't go. <laughs> mm -hmm. They thought, you're a monk, you should be healthy. <laughs> And I said, no. It doesn't matter who you are, everyone gets sick. And actually sickness is part of life. There's nothing wrong with being sick. So when I mention that, there's something right with being sick, which means if you do have any illness, You're not ashamed of it. It's not a personal failing. You don't stigmatize yourself because of it, which means you're more likely to be honest to the illnesses of your body and go and see the doctor as soon as possible. And it's the same with other things you do in life. We all do mistakes. Those mistakes, that's where we learn from. So they're good. Even prisoners in jail. I think you know that story which I wrote about the two bad bricks in a wall. And it's in one of my books. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, let's say it. Yeah, okay, quickly. First coming to Australia, I had no money to build a monastery. So I had to learn how to lay bricks. I was a math teacher, a theoretical physicist before. So I didn't know how to lay bricks. But you learned on the job. And when I made my first brick wall, I was very proud of it until I looked at it and found those two bricks which were crooked. The rest of the bricks were fine. And I oh, suffered man. so much because they're two crooked bricks. And then if, eventually, after three months, I was with a visitor, and they said, that's a beautiful wall. I said, are you blind? Have you left your spectacles in the car? Can you not see those two crooked bricks? And then what they said to me just changed a lot of my 
way I perceive things. He said, yes, I can see those two crooked bricks, but I can also see the 998 perfect bricks in that wall. I love that so much. And that was weird. That was the first time in three months I'd seen anything other than my mistakes. I was a blind fellow, not the visitor. And later on, of course, when I saw a professional bricklayer, they said, all builders make those mistakes. And he said, in the building industry in Australia, we tell our client it's a feature. We charge them an extra couple of thousand dollars. <laughs> Marketing. <laughs> I love it, but more, yeah, it's a feature. Making mistakes doesn't weaken you, but makes you more beautiful. Anyway, I was saying this to going down to our local prison, and there's one fellow there, he's in jail for a long time, and he said, it was only two murderers, only two people I murdered. <laughs> the two bad bricks in the wall. There's so many people I didn't murder. <laughs> okay, yeah, good point. He's understanding there's more to his life than those two stupid bad things he did. That's a very good point, actually. And sometimes, especially, I mean, mistakes that we can't even correct that are there, right? Yeah. You have to live with them somehow. And what about the additional 1,000 new bricks you can lay instead of just sitting back and, and thinking about those two that went wrong? Indeed, yeah. But let's go back to the why. You promised me I'm allowed to ask the difficult questions. Yeah, of course, yeah. So the why. The why, by the why I mean, so here I am, multiple interpretations. You know, I'll go through this life. I'll learn from my mistakes. Some will say I go to heaven and hell. Some will say I perish and do nothing afterwards. And some will say rebirth and I come back. And there could be many, many other theories. Why? I mean, if everything is in my mind, everything is perceived in my mind, why do I need to come here in the first place? Why are we here? Yes, okay. You're not really quite sure why you are sitting in front of this machine talking to a monk on the other side of the world. But the point is you are here. And once you are here, it's what are you doing about this? I love that. You know the Buddhists have this great law of karma. And obviously when people are in really, really difficult situations in life, they often come to monks, they'll come to you, give me some advice, what can I do? Why did this happen to me? Why am I here? And a lot of times you can sometimes say, well, well, well. But in the end, I try and get them back to this moment. I'm not quite sure why that happened to you. But here you are. What are you doing about it? Mm. Because the nice thing about you know, things like karma, love, like duties, responsibilities, or whatever, there's always something you can do right now. Instead of thinking about where it came from, why it came from here, blaming yourself or blaming others. Here I am. Mm. Now, what are we doing with this? So the question is a bit off. The why? It's not going too far into the past. The right question is, what am I going to do with it? Yeah, what am I doing now? Ooh. Even more interesting, how do I yeah. be in this moment? Yeah, and how do I make this moment beautiful? Hmm. How do we make this moment of lockdown and difficulty for everyone who's always looking at life and saying, not always, but often looking at life and saying, ah, this is so unfair, this is not what I deserve, this is not what I want. How do we make it beautiful? Is life fair? Oh, this old prisoner once, he came up to me and he said it was unfair. He's been put in jail for something he didn't do. And he was being honest with me. He said he never did that robbery. And when I was thinking, what can I do to help him? He smiled at me and he said, but Ajahn Brown, there were so many other robberies where I wasn't caught. I guess this is fair. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Karma works. Yes. Yeah. But anyway. It's sometimes fair or not, I'm not quite sure why I have to do this, but here I am, I'm doing it. So I'm going to make the most of it. There is something from, it was Leo Tolstoy, which impressed me when I first read it as a 19-year-old. It was the, called The Emperor's Three Questions. And I turned it into a meditation a technique, which is very powerful. The Emperor's Three Questions is what's the most important time 
who is the most important person or what's the most important thing to do? And obviously the answer to the first question, what, when is the most important time? is always now, the only time you ever have. This is where your future is being made. Now, who is the most important person? That really shook me when I read the answer from this old Russian folktale. The most important person is the one right in front of you now, whoever that happens to be. So right now, Mo, you're the most important person in the world to me. There you go, guys. Did you hear that? This, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> but not anymore. In five minutes, there is someone else. <laughs> but that means you pay attention to people. So you can actually relate to people much better when you give them importance. And people feel that. They feel that you're actually listening to me. That you're giving me importance. That's, that's respect. And the most important thing to do is to be kind, to care. And I emphasize that answer by the story of a young man knew since he was four or five and eventually became a doctor. And he came to me one day, he wanted to resign from his profession because he had a terrible situation where one of his patients had died unexpectedly and he had to give the news to her husband. They'd only just been married a couple of years. They already had a couple of kids. And he had to tell the husband that the woman he loved so much, the mother of his two children, had died. And it really cut him right inside so deeply. And he said, I can never do that again. So I have to resign. And then I told him, said, you know, young man, you misunderstood the purpose of being a doctor. The purpose of being a doctor is not to cure people. It's to care for people. If you think that curing your patients is your, your main goal in life, you're going to fail many times. You're going to be very, very, very disappointed many times. You can't always cure people. You can always care for them. And caring for people makes all the difference in the world. If they do die, they know they've been cared for so well. And number two, if you make caring more important than curing, you'll find you'll cure more people. <laughs> <laughs> than you exactly. otherwise would. So an example of the Empress Three Questions. Now is the most important time. The one in front of you is the most important person. And the most important thing to do is to care. It's the same in relationships. Don't try and cure your partner of their bad habits. Just care for them. Mm, so beautiful. Anyone that comes into your life, not just your partner. Yeah. Yeah. With all those prisoners, so don't try and cure them of their bad habits. Care for them. And those bad habits disappear by themselves. That's a wonderful thing to say. I wish I could keep you longer. I really do. <laughs> But if I can't, I want to ask you one last question, which is, I think, one of the metaphors that completely touched my heart when you said it. I lost my wonderful son when he was 21, and I love him more than anything in life. And, yeah. and you use the analogy of the concert. Yeah which is so beautiful, so beautiful, if you would share it with us, if you don't mind. Yes, indeed, because everyone goes to concerts, and yes, some wonderful concerts in life you've been to. As a monk, I don't really go to concerts, but as a young man growing up in London, I went to so many wonderful concerts. I was at the first um, concert of Led Zeppelin, the Marquis Club. Oh, lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> I still remember that. That's karma. With that one concert, you don't have to go to other concerts afterwards. You see, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do. Anyway, you maybe not have to, but you do. But after the concert was finished, you know, you'd clap, you'd shout for more, whether it's a classical concert or a folk concert or whatever the music was, and you'd always get the encore. And you'd listen to that encore and enjoy the music again. But you always have the time when the, the performers have to go home one way and I have to go home another way. And you knew you, you would never see that band in the same way again. But that didn't matter. After a great performance, I never, ever cried. I never felt sad. I felt so lucky, so privileged to have been there at the time and listen to some of these wonderful, wonderful bands, singers, musicians, and 
remembering all those wonderful performances gave me so much happiness. And I realized that that was with the people I know in my life. My father died, my mother died, many other good friends and relations passed away. And my father died when I was only 16. And I never, ever cried at his funeral or afterwards. I wasn't suppressing anything. I didn't feel like crying. Never have. Even I love that man so much. And I wondered why. Because I felt blessed and privileged. I'd been his son for 16 years. Your son. 20 years he was when he died, your son. 21 amazing performance in every possible way. Instead of crying, you feel like standing up, shouting and clapping. Yay, well done. Absolutely. You know what I always say? I always say I've never really even earned the tickets. It wasn't yeah. like I signed a deal with life to go to that amazing concert called Ali. He showed up and it was bliss. Such a gift, such a blessing for 21 years. Yes, thank you so much, my son. You know what's also more interesting? I once heard you say, and if the concert lasted any longer, you would go like, okay, I mean, we've had enough now. It's like, are we going to hear <laughs> the same songs again? You know, it's really interesting when you think about it, that when things come out of our life, we forget the beauty of having had them and also the fact that as life continues, there are other things we need to do, right? We, there are other things we need to experience, other concerts that we yes, might be invited to. other people who, who come into your life who are really, really important. And if you're too busy grieving for one person who's left, you can't enjoy and love the new person who comes into your life. I, uh, I had you in my life for an hour, the most important person in my life. For the last hour, I, I think you can feel how much love in my heart I have for you, how much respect and gratitude I have for your being, for just being there and sharing with us. I think it's so kind, so wise, and it's so easy to be with you. And it's amazing that beings like you exist. I am so grateful for your time and for what you've shared with us. It's been wonderful in every way. And for those of you who have joined us today, I hope you have felt the beautiful, beautiful energy of Ajahn Brahm as much as I did. And I hope that you found a few nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. Find me on social media and uh, ask me anything. Tell me what you think of slow-mo. Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram. Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn. M Gaudet on Twitter. And mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. And um, do keep the conversation going, invest in your happiness, be in the moment and uh, do help me please by rating this podcast five stars if you haven't already and uh, sharing it with others to make them find a little bit of peace in their life. Remember, if uh, you're very busy today, then maybe it's a better reason for you to find a few more minutes to slow down. And uh, I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.